0: Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I've known and been honored to work with Todd Myers, the Environmental Director of the Washington Policy Center, off and on for more than 20 years. During that time, I've come to respect his analyses, even if we don't always agree on conclusions. Todd has worked in government for conservation organizations and in the policy wonk world where we both reside now. And he's written a book, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. That's what he's here to discuss today. Todd, thanks for being with us. It's very nice to be with you, as always. So Todd, before we jump into the arguments of your book, for our audience who may not be familiar with you, it has been a while since you've been on or the Washington Policy Center, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on environmental issues and your work at the Washington Policy Center.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a circuitous uh, route. Uh, If you had told me when I got out of college that I would spend most of my career working on environmental issues, I would have told you you were crazy because all the people I knew who worked on environmental stuff in uh, college sort of looked weird and smelled bad. Um, (laughs) I decided to run, I used to run political campaigns and I ran a campaign in Washington state for a position called commissioner of public lands that manages millions of acres of state-owned forest and agricultural land. Um, I hadn't worked in environmental policy prior to that in 2000, but we won the election. And so I went down to Olympia and worked for the Washington state department of natural resources. And so I got to deal with issues like spotted owls, old growth, uh, unhealthy forests and forest fires. And after about a year of walking around um, forests with biologists and foresters and asking them questions, uh, I just thought it was fascinating because what I heard from them was very different than what I heard in the political arena. And 22 years later, here I am still working on it. Um, and I am the environmental director at the Washington Policy Center, which is a, a center right free market think tank. Um, and, I, and I have been doing the environmental work there since 2005.
0: Yep. So, Todd, you talk in your book about Eleanor Ostrom's early in your book, and I've long been admired her. She's a Nobel Prize-winning economist, uh, uh, and wrote about uh, communal organizations, communities, how they organize, how they uh, get things accomplished, how they manage resources, but. Even before I received your book, when I first heard about it, I must say it was, it reminded me both of E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, uh, a yeah. study, a study of economics as if people mattered. And I think that comes through in your book that people matter and free market environmentalism sort of foundational thought that local people with local knowledge, in particular, uh, people who own property and have property rights, uh, they often protect the environment the best. Did either of these uh, sources or ideas serve as an influence on the topic of your book and its arguments?
1: Schumacher did not so much, although obviously, as you note, the, the title is very similar and there's a lot of that sort of theme in there. Uh, but Ostrom absolutely did. One of, one of my favorite quotes from her is, what we have ignored is what citizens can do and the importance of real involvement of the people Versus just having somebody in Washington make a rule, right? So it is very much a bottom up recognition that people, um, and especially dealing with environmental issues, um, often have the best solutions to those problems. Whereas distant bureaucrats who don't have the information or incentives to do the right thing um, often make mistakes or don't solve uh, the environmental problems that we face. Um, And you see that again and again, the challenge uh, for her approach was that it was limited by um, the cost of collaboration, right? It was hard to get enough people. You could solve local problems very effectively, and she has great stories about that um, in her book, Governing the Commons. But it was hard to take that theory and and make it widespread um, just because it was you know it was very difficult to organize lots and lots of people, which is why people then turned to government because government could do it. Even though in many cases the government approach was expensive and, and often ineffective. What my book is about is is that now, thanks to technology, thanks to the low cost of information and the low cost of collaboration, her ideals um, now can be spread and address much larger problems, uh, environmental problems, and far more effectively. Um, than government. So yeah, her um, her ideas are definitely um, throughout my book, and whether people are, know it or not, um, they are um, across the globe living out um, the work that she did that earned her the Nobel Prize.
0: There you go. Well, you know, I guess this is – I mentioned that sometimes we don't always agree on our conclusions. And, you know, one of the first things that sort of gives me pause – when I hear people talk about environmental problems in general, you know, as a general problem, and whether the government needs to get involved, is that well, hold on. First off, I've got to know who is identifying the problem as a problem.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> because not everything that someone goes to Washington and says, we got a problem, it seems to me, necessarily is a problem um, that needs not just government fixing, may not need fixing at all. It may just be their point of view of how – Um, some people ought to manage their land. (laughs) Uh, I I know a lot of people in the West who manage their land one way and environmentalists don't like it, and then they go to Washington to say, we've got a problem. (laughs) You need to solve it, right? Um, So I I, I get concerned about that sometimes. In addition, sometimes it's not just the Washington bureaucrats, but it's the environmentalists that are pushing them that have, um, they have their own interest, right? and um i i'm wondering how the local solutions uh, when they clash with the um the problems they've identified when they clash with the uh the people on the ground you know how that gets sorted out because you may be able to solve a problem that 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 someone with the Sierra Club thinks is a problem but that people on the ground in Montana or South Dakota may not think is much of a problem
1: Exactly, <laughs> so that, that, I think there's two things there. <clears throat> the first is uh you and I absolutely agree <laughs> that a lot of so called problems um are aren't, and they are really um, sort of um, justifications for an ideological goal. I think a lot of conservatives, people on the center right, like you and I, um get nervous about environmental issues and environmental politics generally because we see it. We can see it as a a Trojan horse for socialism. Uh, And the reason we see it like that is because it is. (laughs) Often it is. Uh, You know, there's a number of environmentalists who openly admit that, um, you know, that that this is just this is a reason that we need socialism. Um, So, yeah, we're rightfully uh, skeptical of a lot of things that are called environmental problems that actually may not be. So how do you, but there are things that um, we do have concerns about yeah. and, we, and there are worth addressing. And so how do you sort that out? Um, a big theme of my book is that you need to take power out of the hands of politicians and put it into the hands of politicians. Politicians are much more likely to have sort of ulterior motives Um, and to respond to political incentives rather than actually do things that help the environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And again and again, you see that, for instance, in the uh, misnamed Inflation Reduction Act. (laughs) um, They have $1. um, For every $1 of incentives for renewable energy, um, they have $5 uh, that goes to the project if you meet a number of sort of union contract and union rules um so what's the incentive so what are they trying to do there it's like you know five dollars for special interests one dollars for actual renewable energy um so to your to your exact point the you know the promoting renewable energy just becomes a vehicle to reward favored special interest the way that you deal with that is you take power out of the hands of politicians and put it into the hands of people who do care about results, who care more about solving the particular environmental problem, whether that's local or whether that's larger Mm -hmm. than, you know, taking money that isn't theirs and handing it out to special interests so they win, you know, political benefits. Yeah. So-
0: in in time to think small, Todd, you argue that modern technology—you know—you you hinted at this earlier—enables individuals or relatively small groups to have a relatively rapid, outsized effect on environmental protection, as compared to big government solutions. So, please explain and, and give a few examples that you discuss in your book.
1: Yeah, so um, I will give two uh, quick examples. The first was in California. People like to talk about. I mean, climate change sort of subsumes all other environmental issues, even though it's certainly not the one that um, is is most important to a lot of us. But um, just taking that issue, California earlier this year had an energy crisis in September, um, where they were facing energy shortages in part because of their, um, I think, foolish uh, political approach to energy. Um, so they have spent you know billions of dollars building batteries which take energy from solar panels and charge in the middle of the day and then discharge it in the evening when demand for electricity is highest. Um, But during that period of time, they were still facing shortages. And so what the state of California did um, is send a text out to residential customers, people to homeowners, that simply said, look, we're facing shortages. Please conserve where you can. Within 15 minutes, they reduced demand by 2,000 megawatts. That is equivalent to about two-thirds of the battery power that they have in California. One text did that. So think about how much money they have spent on batteries that simply giving people the option, not requiring, but giving people the option to conserve where they can and giving them information um, was equivalent to all of that. It really, I think, is a dramatic example of... When, when government fails, they sort of go to the public and say, you know, can you bail us out? Um, but then they just, you know, they hold on to the power. But it is it is people making decisions and giving opportunities to, to make decisions and say, not just, you know, keep the grid going, but save money um, that really makes a difference. I'll give you another example that's not climate related. And that is ocean plastic. So whatever we, you know, people think about, various environmental issues. I think pretty much everybody agrees we don't want to put more plastic into the ocean. Um, It has a variety of bad impacts, and we're putting a lot of it in. But it's not the United States that's doing it. Um, It is primarily um, developing countries, places like the Philippines, Indonesia, Egypt, Brazil, places like that, um, and uh, where government simply isn't an option. Now, the UN this year signed uh, an agreement to try to figure out how to address ocean plastic. So they're still trying to figure it out. But a group called Plastic Bank uh, went into those countries and said, all right, we're going to pay people to pick up plastic uh, that is likely to wash into the ocean, either on the beaches or elsewhere. And because about 93 percent of people have cell phones or smartphones, right, they, they can geolocate it. Here's where they picked it up. They turn it into a plastic bank collection point, um, which is really just a shipping container. They get paid on their phone because many of these people don't have bank accounts, but they do have cell phones. And then Plastic Bank takes the plastic and sells it to S.C. Johnson, who recycles it and turns it into Windex models. So if you buy a Windex bottle at the store, it'll say made with ocean bound plastic. And that's where it comes from. Now, think about the technology of all of this. It's basically cell phones um, and then a database. I mean, you can actually go onto Plastic Bank's webpage and see where the plastic was picked up in all the various countries that they work. That simple approach, they have collected more than 3.1 billion plastic bottles and more than 140 million pounds of plastic. That is incredible. Meanwhile, the UN is still trying to figure out what they want to do. So, and it, it and is a great example of. Go ahead.
0: And and it didn't require any billions of dollars in government funding, uh, and oversight, right. and some agency getting involved. You know, and the plastic thing you you didn't talk, I, uh, uh, you didn't mention it, but you know, you've also got these entrepreneurs took, looking at plastic in the open seas. That comes, that's either washed out from rivers into the oceans or it's like, you know, long line fishing lines that have been abandoned, got tangled and abandoned. Um, you know, you've got these individuals out there trying to figure that out on their own. It's not, it's not that they get government funds to try and scoop up the plastic. It's like they, they, they see it as a problem and they're trying to come up with a solution. And, um, and, and, and a dozen, you know, probably dozens of different kinds of experiments are under, being undertaken right now to do that different, uh, different kind of technologies.
1: That's right. And, and what it shows is, is that it just, it doesn't take very much because everybody has smartphones because the cost of information, because the cost of collaboration is so low because people can communicate quickly. Um, it makes things that seem, you know, unlikely, uh, not only possible, but extremely effective. Mm. Um, so it's just, it's, Everywhere you turn, you see these sort of small technology approaches making big impacts. But all you hear uh, from politicians is is that we need more, more big government, more big programs, more funding, Uh, when reality, some of the toughest problems in the world, that's not what is – that's not what's making the difference. It's the small approaches that are making the difference.
0: You know, the – you didn't mention these examples, uh, but I I, I, I do – you don't have to explain them but you did have an example of of water in some african countries drinking water and yeah. uh, how to get safe drinking water because i happen to think you know uh, uh human health uh human well-being as an important environmental problem <laughs> ensuring that uh I, I that that falls under the uh, realm of the environment cuz we're part of the environment contrary to what some environmentalists say. So I thought that was a, yeah. a really interesting example of how locals uh, – how, how the government actually did try and fix the problem, and uh, their problem, their solution didn't work, and the locals – or not locals, but a, uh, an entrepreneur came in there and figured out a different way of doing it, and and it seems to be working. The other one was – and maybe you could do, you could actually discuss this one because I think it's fascinating – the, the sea turtles and the eggs and uh, how, how – because yeah. they've been trying to preserve t- sea turtles for decades here. They've they've run some companies yeah. that were doing good jobs uh, protecting sea turtles into the ground because they were private and not uh, <laughs> government-sanctioned.
1: Yeah. Well, let me – I do want to address the, the African water one because – um, it is a really good example of how government <laughs> really screw, screws things up. So the group is, the company is called E-Water Services, and it was a group of um, former UN employees. And what they saw in their time at the UN was that uh, governments or NGOs would install water pumps, and then they would say to the community, here you go, we have installed this water pump for you. Aren't we great? You can now have clean water. But, about 40% of the pumps would break after a year and a half. And then what would happen? Well, the the NGO was gone um, and government obviously would would not come back or or would take a very long time to come back. And so these pumps, once they break, would would break for months at a time um, or forever. So what they did is they created an internet-connected water pump that people paid about a penny a day. They would would take like a key fob that you would use to start your car, put it up against the pump. It would measure the water. So it would charge you, so it had a disincentive um, to waste, right? you You would charge for the water. But more importantly, it would create a market incentive for the people who uh, manage the pump. If the pump broke, they were losing money. And so they would quickly repair it. Uh, and what happened you know what used to take months now takes a day. and actually you can go to ewater Services webpage and they have a data uh, page that shows that ninety six percent of their pumps are working. And this is not just good for human health, which is extremely important, but it's also good to stop deforestation because the way that you get clean water, if you don't have access to a well, is that you hike to a stream, you get the water, and then you boil it. And one of the major causes of deforestation in Africa is cutting down trees to boil water and cook food. So it, it is a perfect example of how making people wealthier, giving them access to clean water is also good for the environment. Um, but there's a postscript. I don't know if you have a question, but I'll tell you there's a, there's an amazing postscript to the story.
0: Well, before you get to the postscript, I did I did want to say it, it wasn't just that. Um, that it, one of the interesting things that I found about it is how how sometimes they wasted water by just leaving the pumps on because they wanted it flowing all the time. Yeah. Because they had people in charge, they, the, the the NGOs, the government, the the UN, they went in and they put someone in charge of of the uh, the pump, the well. Uh, the spigot, whatever. And, uh, it wasn't his job. He was like, uh, the honorific water manager. And so he's off doing his job and, um, because he doesn't want waste, he locks the, he locks the spigot and then people have to find him. And when it's broken, he doesn't have much incentive to fix it because he's not getting paid to fix it. Um, you know, so people couldn't have access when they had a spigot because they couldn't get him to unlock it. He wasn't around. He was doing his job, his real job. that He's getting paid for. And on the other hand, uh, when it gets broken, I guess I would suppose that it takes some of the pressure off of him. You know, it's like, uh, well, it's broken. So now I don't even have to worry about running back and unlocking this thing when people need to use it. Uh, uh, that's, that's a weight off my mind. I've got a nice title and I don't have to do anything for it. Uh, <laughs>
1: So yeah, uh, all, I just thought all the that was incentives interesting.
0: Are
1: wrong. Yeah. Yeah, all the all the incentives are wrong. They're not toward improving access or helping the environment or things like that. It is um just you know sort of a showcase and and as you say if it's broken well you know, no headaches because oh, yeah. they're making money anyway. You said showcase. Um, I'll
0: bet every time they had one of those openings, they had a press conference where the guy was here and yeah. <laughs> they took they took pictures and appeared to local people. Oh, UN brings water to distant community, safe drinking water. Oh, aren't they heroes? Uh, I, I bet it was a big uh, PR
1: thing. Well, and that's exactly right. And that political incentive, the incentive to look good rather than actually make it work is what is destroying e-water in one of the countries that they're in right now. And I think uh, it is uh, Gabon, where um, the government is running for re-election. And so one of their promises is free water for everyone. And so now they have actually gone into villages where e-water has working effective pumps and drilled free wells. So that people can get water for free, and so what what do you think is going to happen? I mean one e water is now having to pull out because right, nobody's going to use their water um, when they can get it for free, but um, you know months from now, a year from now, what 's going to happen to those wells? They will once again be broken, um, and where will the government be having been reelected or not, what, what will they be doing? So you will once again be reliant on the government to come. And fix these wells. And so they have driven a system that is sustainable, that is working, that is reliable out um, and made people once again reliant on the government. And so it is a (laughs) fantastic example of how, you know, uh, the government um screws up sustainability. Yeah. Their their solutions in the truest were in the truest sense of the word, sustainable are unsustainable. Um and they actually destroy sustainable solutions. So it's the, very uh, it's very bad.
0: Yeah. Now the um you know and and my I would have questions as to whether the well water was safe to drink. How well will it be? Even if the well itself is functioning, you know, nothing goes wrong with the technology of the well. A drought comes through, and suddenly your uh, <laughs> your groundwater that you're drawing from the well is is gone. Um, yeah, it's, it's so many solutions that uh, what, what was the name become E Water came up with that that the government yeah. is now actively undermining. It reminds me uh, of the old. Sort of children's adults book. Uh, Tom Smith's incredible bread machine, where uh, <laughs> the, he was charging a penny a loaf. He had to go up to a, a penny and a half because of uh, his cost. The government said, "Oh, you're gouging." They took over his company. Now bread costs just a penny. It, it, bread costs a buck fifty to make, but the government subsidizes it by about forty nine, so it's back down to a penny, and taxpayers pay the rest.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so, I think I I think I said Gabon, but I think it's actually Gambia. But it's just you know, it's, it, it will be interesting to see a, uh, you know a year from now what's mm-hmm. happening in Two those years. villages tonight. Uh, so,
0: well, but, as you say, uh, and the government won't care because by then it's reelected, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, you've written that the left's environmental policies don't work, and that sometimes even conservatives assume that helping the environment means expanding government. Why? Why? Why is that? Why do conservatives buy into this, uh, this myth? Why, why are normal? Why are people who are normally in favor of markets? Why do they think markets fail when it comes to the environment?
1: Yeah, I hear, I hear this a lot. And, and um, I think that the mindset comes in part from our experience in the 1970s. So In the 1970s, when we had, you know, big outfalls into the water, people think of the Cuyahoga River catching on fire and big smokestacks We passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And, you know, they worked. We have cleaner air and cleaner water because of those. But the nature of the problem was a limited number of large sources. So it was easy for government to target those sources and make a big improvement. But the types of problems we face today are very different. They're distributed. There are lots of small efforts. And so um, it's hard it, – it is hard or virtually impossible to solve those sorts of problems with big government programs because it, they can't be everywhere and they can't provide the incentives to you know, make the um, small incremental improvements Um uh, in the way that they you know, made big improvements in the 1970s. And I think that, so I think that that is part of why conservative, and a, and a lot of people think that government can be effective because they've seen it where it has been effective. And so most of what you hear uh, conservatives talk about, and I will say that this was my mindset before I started working in environmental policy was, yes, we care about the environment, but at what cost? Um, to the point that, you know, you made, which is right, which is we can't just forget the human element of this, right? We can't just say, oh, you know, too bad. Sorry, humans. We have to do this for the planet. Um, we ha- You either have, to, you can't have drinking water or you can't have energy or things like that. And so that I think is sort of where conservatives came from. And rightly so. It is it is a, It is an argument and it is a point that needs to be made. But I think that The other thing about, about market approaches is that if I say, okay, there is a problem, how do I solve that problem? Um, And the answer that we often give is, well, um, you know, market forces, there's a cost of that. There's a value of that waste. There's a whatever. um, And innovation will find a way to address that. It is, it is an unsatisfying answer because Um, It is, you know, well, it it will work out and people will figure out how to solve it. What politicians do is they come along and they give false hope. Oh, if we just pass my bill and create this new agency, we can solve the problem. And here it is, you know, a tangible solution that will do this. (laughs) Um, You call something,
0: you call something the Environmental Protection Agency and immediately you believe it's protecting the environment
1: that's right. And I think it's, and even in, you know, the minds of people who recognize the power of markets, um, if you point to a problem and say, how is the market going to solve that? And your answer is, I don't know specifically, but the beauty of the market is, is that it's innovative and creative and there's lots of diverse solutions and and it will find a way. And people kind of walk away and go, I don't know, that doesn't, it doesn't sound very persuasive to me. This this guy over here is telling me he's got a plan that will solve it now. And we just need to raise taxes, you know, just a penny. I mean, why not do that? Right. I mean, so I think it's, it's hard to argue against that in public. And like I said, even some conservatives argue uh, uh, fall for that. And what their response then is to say, well, either that problem isn't really a problem or um, yes, it's a problem, but the cost is too high. But actually when you look at, you know, sort of the, The the types of environmental problems we face today, government is really bad at solving them. And a lot of the things that people are concerned about, whether it is, you know, like I said, ocean plastic, whether it is uh, energy, whether it is um, species protection. Right. The Endangered Species Act doesn't do a good job of recovering species. Government solutions don't have a very good record. Um, But I think people just assume that it will work because it, it sounds like it should.
0: Yeah, well, uh it's funny that they, they when the old sticker, trust me, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Conservatives cringe, right? right? Uh, and yet, when it comes to the environment, they often uh, they become country club Republicans and say, "Oh yeah, you got to have big government for that." A lot, a lot of, it's a lot of them the, the same government. way on education. You know, they they, they they're they, less and less conceding it on education now. But uh, a lot of them ha- used to do the, oh yeah, we did public school. just got to put more money in public schools. And we'll get it solved. And, uh, of course we got to have these, these heavily funded public schools. And I think a lot of, some of them are, are backing off that now. But I want to say, um, I guess back then, uh, maybe conservatives, first off, you got to remember it was a Republican that did that, right? Reagan. I mean, not Reagan, uh, Nixon. Um, right. but, I think they were fooled even back then. You know, there were problems in the 70s and the late 60s, and they were largely a creation of government. Uh, you know, yeah. you go back in history and you find out that when we had a common law system, uh companies didn't get to pour pollutants into lakes, rivers and streams because someone could sue and block them. And the courts would say, nope, they got a property right to having their land on, you know, their cows not killed their land not polluted and so you factory have to stop or you have yeah. to negotiate with them and, you know and the progressive era said uh, w- along with conservative business con- pro business conservatives got together and said oh no we got to pass some laws to let uh, you know the the uh, the business of america be business right um, and so we got the pollution in the rivers that we didn't have in the late 19th century and early 20th century before laws were passed allowing precisely that type of pollution when people um, – and, and, you know, then the pendulum swung the other way. You got too much pollution, and so the big government solution is not to go back to the property rights system, but uh, another big government solution to cause a pro- to solve a problem they created. Yeah,
1: one of, one of the things I joke about is that the- you know, the answer to too much government is more government. Um, You hear that all the time, which is, is that a government, you know, quote unquote solution will cause problems either in terms of increasing energy prices or other things like that. And they'll say, Oh, don't worry. We have a government solution that will help people pay their energy bills, which we have driven up and things like that. But, and and to your point about, especially about air pollution, the peak of air pollution in in the United States is about 1950. Yeah. You know, the clean air act, was in the early 70s. So, uh, you know, what happened between the 1950s and early 70s? Well, we don't see that because one of the things that the Clean Air Act did was it started rigorously taking data. So the data prior to 1970, um, we don't, you know, it's kind of sketchy. So you don't see the work that was done primarily by private sector because, you know, waste of resources is, is waste of money. And so... Finding ways to be more energy efficient and producing less pollution and things like that is good for the bottom line. So, a lot of that work was done between 1950 and 1970 that isn't apparent because the data collection just wasn't there. So, we are sort of misled that only government solutions can solve these problems because the data showing the work that was done by the private sector um, is hard to come by.
0: So, Todd. One theme of your book is that the only way to reduce the influence of politics and environmental policy is to empower people to do what government cannot. Please please explain that a bit.
1: So the best example of this – so I live near Seattle. Um, We have a majority socialist city council. Um, we have a city council member who openly calls herself a Trotskyite, so when I oh say God. we have a socialist city council, i'm not just you know you know using that in a sort of a colloquial sense yeah, uh, they literally call themselves it's not rhetorical flourish, yeah yeah, exactly um <clears throat> but uh in you know uh in the early days of uber um they didn't like Uber because obviously they couldn't control it, and so they actually tried to put a cap on Uber trips, basically turned them into a taxi system, like the taxi medallion system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they passed a law um, saying, okay, Uber can only do you know this many drivers. Two weeks at their next city council meeting, there were so many Uber drivers and so many riders in the city council chambers that they immediately changed the rule, but they went back. Now, this is in Seattle. So, that was really a powerful lesson to me about that when you give people power, um, they don't want to give it back, even in places where the the dominant mindset is that, you know, you want more government, which, which it certainly is in Seattle. Um, and so that, I think, is how, you know, you can slowly start to change the mindset of where environmental solutions come from to go from a situation where it's just all government all the time, where you empower people so that they are working on environmental solutions. They are make they are having success. Um, and then when government tries to come in and change it, um, they can say, um, well, no, we we like this, we want to be in charge. We don't like your, you know, top-down approach. Uh, and it doesn't work all the time, right? the, the example that I give, uh, earlier about the E water services, about the government coming in and handing out free water, I think you know that'll that it is uh, obviously taking power away from people, um, and they might be effective. But in other places, that's not the case. People want to keep power, um, and so I think that that if you want to change the mindset from a top-down big government mindset on the environment to a bottom-up approach, giving people more control, more power is a is a great way to do that. And the beauty of that is that it appeals to people on the left. There are certainly a lot of ideological uh, environmentalists um, for whom uh, the environment is a subset of their ideology about socialism or something else. But there are a lot of environmentalists who truly care about environmental solutions. The foreword to my book was written by a woman who works for a group called Wild Labs, which is part of the World Wildlife Fund. But she is you know, uh, helping pioneer a lot of these conservation technologies that put power in the hands of people, not government. And many of the stories that I uh, tell um, are from people on the left. Um, And so the nice thing about it is is that there is uh, appeal across the political spectrum. And so, you know, uh, we always hear about, you know, college students and other people coming home and saying, oh, you know, conservatives don't care about the environment. We need more government. We need more government programs. Um You know, one of the things that I hope my book can do is to be a tool for people on the center right to say, "No, actually, the, those programs don't work, and here are people who agree with you. Here are people on the center left who think that this is a better way." So um, if we you know I, I think that that is the only way that we are going to address environmental problems in a way that doesn't just become uh, intentionally or unintentionally um, you know. Uh, an excuse for more socialism Mm.
0: and for more partisan uh, bickering and uh, you know just just battling and getting nothing done right? Swinging back and forth with the next election cycle Um, Todd, big picture if you can make just one point what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion of your book, Time to Think Small and tell them at the end how to get a copy of it
1: yeah, I think the biggest point is is that your your uh, analogy to education, I think, is very apt because conservatives obviously cared about education and they obviously care about the environment. Look at the map. Look at a map. Look at where the red parts of the country are and look at where the blue parts. The red parts is where the nature is. Conservatives surround themselves with nature, the environment, natural resources. Um, And they don't, you know, it is frustrating to them to be told by people who live in cities uh, where we have paved over nature uh, that they don't care about the environment. (laughs) Well, indeed,
0: indeed, conservation, the word conservation at its root has conserve and they're both from the same root,
1: right? That's exactly right. And so I think the main point of my book is to is to encourage conservatives to to have the courage of their convictions They care about the environment and they know that local approaches where you empower people through market forces are more effective. Um, And what my book is, it gives lots of examples of how that is true. And so, what I want people on the center right to do is rather than say, I would like to help the environment, but it costs too much, or that's not really an environmental problem, to say instead, you know what? I care about the environment and my stuff works. (laughs) Your stuff is about you know, politics about rewarding, um, the special interests. It's not about actually solving the problems. And so that I hope is my, the main takeaway is to have conservatives get to a point now, you know, it didn't used to be that they were confident on, you know, education in schools. Um, now they are, they say, we see that public schools don't work and that there's a better way. Mm -hmm. And I want this to say the same thing for the environment. We see that government solutions for the environment don't work. There is a better way, and here's what it is.
0: Yeah. And how do they get a copy of the book?
1: Uh, You can get it at uh, uh, hopefully your local bookstore, um, but certainly on Amazon, uh, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problem.
0: Great. Todd, it's always good to talk with you, and I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been too long. Hopefully we do it again soon.
0: Agreed. Listeners, thanks for checking in us today. Please check Heartland's website as we track and follow the work of Todd Myers and the rest of the team at the Washington Policy Center. And as we track the progress of environmental and energy laws and regulations that affect you. In addition please consider attending Heartland's forthcoming 15th International Conference on Climate Change at the Hilton Lake, Buena Vista, in Orlando, Florida, on Thursday, February 23rd through Saturday, February 25th. You can get Heartland's early bird rate for a few days more by registering before December 31st. The conference... With, we'll have panels and presentations from many of the world's top climate and energy experts discussing the latest climate science and wrong headed energy and environmental policy solutions that have been proposed that the world's government seemed determined to impose on us. Uh, also, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye.